Well, since the advent of YouTube and the proliferation of social media, uh, there's kind of a new terminology that's entered into uh, our our language. And we talk about uh, something going viral, right? Uh, Whether that's a a funny video, whether it's a picture, whether it's a story, doesn't have to be true or not, just uh, has to catch on and it can be quickly uh, spread like a a virus uh, might might spread infection in, in much the same way. Something can go viral just online. It can be spread from person to person to person so, so quickly. But it's not just uh, cute videos or uh, news stories or pictures uh, or uh, moments uh, that can go viral, Uh, but it's also Bible verses. Uh, we have uh, technology uh, sites like Bible Gateway or the YouVersion Bible that make it very easy to, to bookmark, to, to copy, to share, to paste, to, to, to like, to tweet, to uh, retweet uh, Bible verses uh, along the way. And what's interesting is they kind of track these. What, what verses are those that get the most traffic? What are the Bible verses that get uh, liked the most or uh, reposted or retweeted or shared or highlighted the most along the way. The Bible Gateway website has monitored this for a number of years. Uh, Near the top is uh, usually two verses. John 3.16 would come as probably no surprise. Uh, But then the other verse is one we're going to look at a little bit later this morning is Jeremiah 29.11. And what we have found is that when you look at the verses that so often go viral, Many of those verses are, how shall we say, not taken in context. That the perhaps actual meaning of the verse is different than what people are trying to make it say when they post it or share it online. In fact, is the oft-quoted verses are often considered some of the most frequently misinterpreted verses in all of the Bible. And so what we wanted to do for just a few weeks this summer, we're just going to look at four of those verses, four of those viral verses that, that are very popular, they, they get a lot of traffic, uh, but aren't always necessarily handled well in context. And to kind of set the, the table for this, I want to make sure that I'm, uh, I'm kind of clear on this. Kind of a, a twofold truth that I want you to hear as we enter into this series on viral verses. The first side of the truth is this we have no right to hold God responsible for a promise that we've misunderstood. We have no right to hold God responsible for a promise that somehow we have have ripped out of context or we have misunderstood or we have tried to misapply uh, to the circumstances of our life. Uh, We have no right to be upset with God because He doesn't come through in the way we thought He should come through because we misapplied or misinterpreted a a verse along the way. But the, the flip side of that truth is this, in Christ Jesus... We can rely on all the promises of God when they're properly understood and applied. Paul put it this way, for all the promises of God, all the promises of God, find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. That in Christ Jesus, we can rely on every one of the promises, because every one of the promises of God find their yes in Him when they are properly understood and properly applied. 
Now, when you approach a series like this, you can do it kind of in a couple of different postures. And and one posture is almost just to kind of hammer folks, right? How dare you misinterpret that or misapply that or rip that out of context and and really go hard after folks. But I'm kind of trying to learn in this from the church father, Augustine. Now, Augustine was a staunch, staunch defender of orthodoxy well documented. When faced with scholarly opponents who sought to undercut gospel truths, Augustine did not pull any punches. He pushed back hard. But when he encountered a well-intentioned yet perhaps misinformed believer, Augustine chose a more pastoral track. Here are some of his words on Christian teaching. Anyone with an interpretation of scriptures that differs from that of the writer is misled, but not because the scriptures are lying. If he is misled by an idea of the kind that builds up love, which is the end of the commandment, he is misled in the same way as a walker who leaves the path by mistake, but reaches the destination to which the path leads by going through a field. Now, Augustine is not excusing poor interpretive efforts but rather he kind of reiterates Christ's greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your being, to love your neighbor as yourself. Some have called this the law of the double loves. And what he argued is that if a reader's understanding leads them to a greater love for God or neighbor, then it is useful. I think the implication is so long as one's use of Scripture leads to a deeper love for God, and a love for others, then in the interim, leaders and pastors and teachers don't have to freak out about every interpretive misstep. Of course, Augustine doesn't stop there. He he understands that it's not merely the ends justify the means. He continues to write, but he must be put right and shown how it is more useful not to leave the path in case of the habit of deviating should force him to go astray or even adrift. Eventually, the call of the Christian leader as shepherd is to help steer others towards not only the correct ends, but also the correct route. And that's what I hope to do in this series. As we look at some of these frequently misunderstood verses, I don't want to beat people up, but I want to point you to the correct path. I want to point you to the correct understanding of those verses and the, and the fact that we can claim those promises, we can say yes to those promises in Christ Jesus, rightly understood and rightly applied. Which brings us to that most frequently uh, shared verse from Bible Gateway of last year, Jeremiah 29, 11. Is Jeremiah 29, 11 a promise for followers of Jesus Christ? Because my guess is many of us have posted it, have shared it, have liked it. We Maybe we have a card or a cup or something with, with this verse on it, right? Uh, there's different, obviously, English translations. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Is that a promise? that followers of Jesus Christ can rightfully claim today? And the answer is yes and no. 
Sound like a politician, I know, right? Yes and no. Yes, because all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. But no in the way that very often we frequently take it, interpret it, and apply it. Particularly in our North American context and culture. So what I want to do is kind of dive in, talk a little bit about the background. What is it that this promise is actually saying is part of a larger message that Jeremiah was sending. And then we'll talk about how do we apply it accurately for us today. So let's go to the background. For background, I'm going to have you back up a couple chapters uh, all the way to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, kind of headquartered out of, primarily operating out of Jerusalem. And that's where a lot of his messages are. And he's a prophet to people who have this history of rebelling against God, of deviating from God's way, even as they are God's people. And we see again in chapter 25 this, uh, this departing, this uh, departure from God's way, this rebellion against God's way. So I'm back in chapter 25, uh, verse 3, let's just go ahead and get the context. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from this evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon, dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger. With the work of your hands, then I will do you no harm. Yet... You have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. He's calling them out. You have persistently and consistently been in rebellion against me. Despite the fact that I've called you to turn, to return, to repent, you haven't done it. And so it starts off with this rebellion. There is this rebellion that marks their walk with God. And to that rebellion, there comes a message of judgment. This message of judgment that Jeremiah delivers to the people. He's speaking to them now in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he's saying, 
you, I am about to bring upon you this power from Babylon. They're going to come. They're going to crush you. And that's actually going to be a period of judgment that's going to last some 70 years. And that's exactly what happened. So March 16th, 597 B.C., they break through in Jerusalem, and they, they capture the city, and they take some of the leading citizens, the king and some of the other leading folks, and they carry them off into exile. They transport them, transplant them from Jerusalem as exiles into Babylon. You can read about it in 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 36. So in the midst of that, he's delivered this message of judgment. You're going to be there, and God's going to unfurl this judgment for you for 70 years. In the face of that message, there's a competing message. There's a competing message, and we're introduced in chapter 28 to the prophet Hananiah, or at least he claims to be a prophet. And he has an entirely different message. I'll just pick up highlights of it. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon." So he's saying, listen, you've heard about this 70 years. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen in two years, the yoke of slavery is going to be broken. All of these people who are in exile are going to be brought back, and everything is going to be good again. Jeremiah hears this message, and his initial response is, in verse 6, he says, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Jeremiah says, listen, I wish that were true. I wish that was really going to happen. But it's not. And he confronts him. Hananiah, you're a false prophet. And then he wraps up, therefore, in verse 16, thus says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have uttered rebellion against the Lord. And then that short, sad statement of verse 17, in the same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. Now that's, that's the background. So you have Jerusalem has fallen. God has told them they're going to be in exile. They're going to be under this yoke of slavery. They're going to be under Babylonian rule for 70 years. There have been false messengers who are promising them something a whole lot better and a whole lot easier. Jeremiah says it's not going to happen. That's the context that brings us to chapter 29. And in chapter 29, Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem because he wasn't considered a leading enough citizen to be deported into exile. Jeremiah, still in Jerusalem, writes a letter. And his letter is addressed to those people who are living in exile. And he has a message for them that includes verse 11, that promise that we grasp onto. And I want you to kind of see four parts of this letter. The first part, Jeremiah says to him, settle in. Settle in, make the best of a bad situation. Chapter 29, 
verse 4, as he's talking about who he's writing to. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now let's pause right there. He's telling them, make the best of a bad situation. You've heard somebody said two years, it's not going to be two years. You're going to be there. Settle in. It's not your homeland. It's not where your heart is but it is where you are. Settle in and make the best of a bad situation. And while you're there, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. I know it's not where you belong, but seek the welfare of the city, for in the welfare of the city, you'll find your own welfare connected to that as well. Seek the welfare of the city. But then he goes on to warn them. As you settle in, as you build a life as best you can, making the best of a bad situation, as you seek the welfare of the city, beware. Beware of the reality of false prophets. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. As you're there, as I've told you, settle in, make the best of a bad situation, do all that you can to seek the welfare of the city in which I have placed you, there are always going to be voices that rise up to tell you a different message, maybe to tell you a message you would prefer to hear, but they are lying to you, they are not telling you the truth, beware of these false prophets. And then in that context, he gives them a promise. A promise that they can cling to. Let's look at the next few verses. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Remember, he's writing to the exiles from Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Settle in. You're going to be there 70 years. Make the best of a bad situation. While you're there, seek the welfare of the city. Beware of false prophets. But he also gives them that promise. That there is an end coming. And at the end of that 70 years, I am going to return the exiles to that promised land. Now, I want you to notice a couple things about this promise because this is very important. 
The first thing is it's a corporate promise. It was what God was telling, I'm going to do this among the people. He wasn't just speaking to an individual. It was a corporate promise. This is what I'm going to do for my people. Seventy years in captivity, but I will bring them back. Now, here's the second one. Very few of the people who heard this promise were alive when it was fulfilled. Now, that'll mess up your tweet, won't it? Think about it. Seventy years. Very, 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 very few of the people who heard the initial reading of that letter from Jeremiah would be alive to see the fulfillment of the promise. Okay, Jeff, you're starting to discourage me a little bit here, right? (laughs) Hang with me. So what about you and I today? When we come to a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, we see it posted and shared and highlighted, and we see it on a card or a, a cup or whatever it may be. How does this apply to us today? Because I have no right to try to hold God hostage for a promise I've misunderstood or misapplied. But all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So how do I apply this today? Well, let me suggest to you four major thoughts. The first is to understand that you and I live as exiles in this world. That you and I, just like the recipients of this letter in a sense, are living as exiles in this world. Peter put it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter was writing, he said, we, we, we understand this, where we're living right now, this is not, not where our heart is. This is not really our home. We're living as sojourners. We're living as exiles. There's a sense in which we understand we're, we're passing through. We're in some sense even living in enemy territory, and we are to, to live distinctly in a land that is not fully and completely ours. But it wasn't just Peter that talked in that language. Paul talked about it. But our citizenship, Paul said, is in heaven, he wrote to the Philippians. And their citizenship in a Roman colony was so important to them. But he said, our citizenship, our true citizenship, where we truly belong, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul was reminding the Philippians, yes, you are citizens of this Roman colony, but your true citizenship, your true home, where your heart is to be connected to, is your citizenship is in heaven. And that begins to change our perspective, begins to change the way we live our lives if we live as exiles in this world, if we understand this isn't our home, that we're here for a season and we're here for a purpose. We live as exiles in this world. And as we live in this exiles, he, he gives us some guidance. The scripture gives us some guidance. What do you do in the meantime? 
and there are lots there, but let's, let's just broad brush some things that align with Jeremiah's instruction. First of all, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. How do you live as an exile in a land? Well, you live, first of all, submitting to, being subject to the governing authorities. As far as those governing authorities aren't in direct conflict with the direction and the commands of God. And so all of us, whatever land we find ourselves living in, we are to be subject to the governing authorities. That's part of what it means to live as an exile in this land. Not only to be subject to, but to be intercessors for and prayers for. First of all, Paul wrote to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As you live as an exile, you live under the authority of the Lamb, you pray for those who are in authority, uh, hoping to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But then as we think about the instructions of Jesus, we understand that we have a responsibility. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As long as you are on this earth, as long as you are operating in this life, you are, you are in exile. This is not your home. Your citizenship is in heaven. Live under subjection, submission as far as possible in alignment with God unto the governing authorities. Intercede, particularly for those in authority. But so order your life that people see you're different. I think this would parallel even Jeremiah's instruction to seek the welfare of the city. Engage in those good works so that folks may see those good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We live as exiles in this world. First reminder from this promise in the context. Secondly, beware of false prophets. It wasn't just in Jeremiah's day, but it is for our day. Paul wrote Timothy to warn him, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I don't know about you, but every time I read this verse, I think, welcome to North America today. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to shout anybody out in particular, but can I just say, just because somebody has a best-selling book doesn't mean they speak truth. Just because somebody has a viral video doesn't mean that it's truth. In fact is, if... What we see in the Old Testament is true. What we see in the New Testament is still true today. People will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth. 
There is that tendency to, to look for those things that confirm what we already want to be true and right. right? And so we, we, we pursue those things. And you can make a pretty good living marketing things that are half-truths in our culture right now. I think the word of application for us is beware. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets who will take even promises of God and twist them and distort them to make them mean something that they do not. And as we think about that, we think about the third thing. And that is to recognize that the fulfillment of this promise is not the fulfillment of the American dream. They're not the same things. And this, this is where I think sometimes we get this verse kind of knotted up a little bit. When we hear words like prosper you, a future and a hope, we begin to think about all of my plans and all of my hopes and all of my dreams. And, and sometimes we connect a whole lot of material uh, wealth with those things along the way. But I want to remind you what the, what the Scripture reminds us about, about faith. In Hebrews 11, there's this incredible roll call of men and women of great faith. And some of them experience some, some divine intervention, some miraculous moments in their life, and there's some well-known names in there, Abraham and Moses and David, and on and on and on the list goes. But right there in the middle of this roll call of these heroes of the faith were some who had a different experience in the right here, right now. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. And they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They didn't ex experience in their earthly lifetime of 50, 60, 70, whatever, however many years, all the fulfillment of the promise because it was yet to come in its fullness and in its completeness. Now, don't, don't mishear me on this. Yes, God in his abundant grace so often blesses us in this present age. And honestly, the fact that you and I are gathered here this morning is even of itself incredible testimony to the fact God has so abundantly blessed us, has he not? I mean, physically, materially, with opportunities, uh, on and on and on the list goes. I mean, God in His abundant grace has so blessed us in this present age. And that's not wrong. In fact, as Paul encourages us through Timothy, but as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
As God blesses us materially, as God blesses us physically with opportunities, uh, thing, enjoy those things. Enjoy them as a gift of God who richly has provided that. But don't ever make the mistake of setting your hope on those things. Don't let that be where your heart gets captured. But set your hope on God. Yes, God blesses us in this present moment. Sometimes it's materially, sometimes it's physically, sometimes it's with, with great opportunities and great life experiences along the way. And for many, many, many of us, that's our story. Thank you, God, right? But a lot of the blessings we experience in this present age are spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing blessing in the heavenly places. That even in this very moment, in this present age, you can know blessings. You can know the joy of being forgiven, the the, the cleansing of Jesus Christ. You can know what it, it feels like to be adopted, to be a part of God's forever family, to have that security, to have your identity founded not in your performance, but in the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. We can know a peace that surpasses all understanding, regardless of what life throws at us along the way. We can know a hope that transcends any circumstance in our life. And on and on and on, the real-time, present, spiritual blessings go that God has blessed us with. Yes, all of those come graciously from the hands of God. And so we recognize that the fulfillment of this promise, so, so rich, but it's not to be equated with the fulfillment of the American dream. That every hope you have materially, every hope you have for opportunity, every hope you have for for, for position, every hope you have for pleasure or relationship is actually going to come true. No. Because the fourth truth, the fourth application is this. While we can enjoy in the moment whatever God's placed before us, we look forward in faith to the ultimate fulfillment of this promise and it's talked about again and again and again one of the best known is in John 14 where Jesus put it this way let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. There was a time when the exiles were going to be brought back to Jerusalem. But for many of them that first heard that letter, they weren't going to be alive when it happened. There is a time when Jesus Christ will take those who belong to him unto himself. But it's not on this side of eternity. Unless the Lord should return, for us it's going to be on the other side of death. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is yet to come. So if we step back to Hebrews 11, that roll call of the faithful. Some had awesome 
even pleasant, pleasurable, exciting earthly experiences. Some had such trauma and and tragedy and, and hardship along the way. But in the midst of that description of both of those circumstances is this word. But as it is, even those who had a a good experience saw God move in mighty ways in their life. As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The best is yet to come. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is not that God promises every one of us uh, the best version of the American dream, but that he blesses us in the here and now with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And he is preparing a place for us, a city in which we will dwell. We look forward in faith to the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. I like the way that Russell Moore wrote about this. Your plans may evaporate. Your dreams may be crushed. Your life may be snuffed out. But the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you up with him. Because he has a plan. He he has plans to to prosper you. He has plans to give you a future and a hope. And it may not be everything that you thought this life was going to be. It may not be the ultimate fulfillment of the American dream, but it will be the fulfillment of God's promise and God's dream for your life. And we experience a lot of that in the here and the now. But the best is yet to come. So if I can bottom line it, I'll do it with these two statements. How do I live out, how do I live in response to this promise in God's word? Live for God's glory now and look forward to the glory that's yet to come. Regardless of what your circumstances are right here, right now, and some of us, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, and we, we have some good circumstances right now. Thank God for them. Don't fix your hope upon them. Enjoy them as a gift from God. Hold them loosely. Some of us are in the midst of some very, very, very hard, difficult, never thought my life would be here circumstances. Live for God's glory now and look forward to the glory that's yet to come. My family, we have a place at Holden Beach, North Carolina. It's just a little stretch of of sand and all houses there. It's no high rises or anything. So it's a great kind of a family beach, place to hang out. And we, we got to be there uh, Fourth of July week and, and just had a great time. But it, just walking up and down the, the street to, to kind of make our way to the, the, the beach to get out every day, we passed a house that was just such a, just a real-time reminder of hold all things loosely. It's a house that sits, sits across the street from ours. It's, it's a few houses up. 
far as we know, it was probably the first house that was built on that street decades ago. And it's been in this one family, and they've enjoyed it, and they've had lots of good memories. In fact, is the house has a sign out front. The house is Pa's Dream. I mean, this is kind of their dream, right? And they, they, they have enjoyed it. Oh, this, this spring and summer, they were having some work done to, to update, and they had, were in the process. They had replaced some windows, and they were ripping off all the, the outer decks of the, the things to kind of put those up. And in that process, the contractor discovered that there was kind of rot throughout the house, from the pilings to a whole lot of it. And the folks that whoever officially comes out and does that, they came out and they quickly inspected and they condemned the house. And they couldn't put steps back up. They couldn't put anything on. They had to clear out the house. And so as you walk by, you saw this family. It's had decades there. Sweet family. Couldn't even get up a set of stairs to get to the house. They had to get all their possessions and all their furniture out with ladders and other things. Tried to strip whatever they could salvage off the house. And there it sits. No windows, no doors, no siding, no air conditioning unit, no electricity. It's it just sits there condemned because they don't have the money to tear it down and build it all over again from scratch. And just as you walk by that and had the chance to meet members of that family, just multiple generations through the years, you just your heart goes out to them, and particularly kind of the matriarch. Uh, very elderly at this point. And you recognize that Pa's dream has become this nightmare. It's become a financial nightmare. It's become an emotional nightmare, a mental nightmare. It's just, just such a weight on this family right now. How quickly the dream can become a nightmare in any of our lives. Right? You hold all those things loosely. And when you walk by a building, you see it condemned, and you know that all that that means for that family. And I knew I was going to be coming back, and I was going to be preaching on this thing. Is that promise still true? I mean, when your dream becomes a nightmare... Is it still true that I know the plans I have for you? Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. And I declare to you today that it is still true. But your dreams may be crushed. And your plans may evaporate. And even your life may be snuffed out. But the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you up with him. I don't know what your circumstances are today. Whether you're in a season of abundance or a season of trial. 
But I know this, that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that regardless of your circumstance today, He knows the plans that He has for you. May not be your plans. He knows how to give us a future and a hope that extends well beyond 70 years. And in the meantime, you and I are called to live for His glory now and to look forward to the glory that's yet to come. May it be so. Let's pray to Him together, please. Oh, Father, thank You. Thank You that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus, including Jeremiah 29, 11. And Father, we readily admit that we can very easily kind of twist and distort your word to make it say what we want it to say. Well, Lord, we just come before you today and just admit that your way is better than our way. Your promises, rightly understood and applied, are better than our version of them. And so, Father, today, we cling to you and to your promises. And by your enabling, empowering grace, we seek to live for your glory now and to look forward to that glory that's yet to come. I'm just going to ask you just to be still for just a moment in the presence of the Lord.